Hello and welcome to the fourth CSF podcast on Axel Spondyl Arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes on a bi-monthly basis along our psoriatic arthritis podcasts and we'll be also supplying you with monthly side text, slide text to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of Axel Spondyl Arthritis. First of all, allow me to introduce myself and my co-host. I'm Professor Xenophon Barreliakos. I'm a medical director and professor of rheumatology at the Ruhr University of Bochum in Germany. And today I'm joined by Dr. Sofia Ramiro, who's a consultant rheumatologist and a senior researcher at the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. If you want to find more out of uh, these uh, sequences and um, about us, use the papers that we will discuss today and please head over to the CSF website. website. Sophia. Thank you very much, Xenophon. So the papers we will be discussing today in this podcast will focus on the Azazula recommendations for the management of actual SPA, uh, from which we have the 2022 update that has just been published. And it will be followed by the current understanding of efficacy and safety of biological DMARTs in patients with actual SPA, which was conducted, uh, it's in a systematic literature review conducted to inform this uh, update of the Azazula recommendations. So let's start with the first paper. So the Azazula recommendations uh, themselves, uh, in which uh, both uh, Professor Baraliakus and myself are co-authors. And it, it focuses on the management of patients with actual SPA, including non-pharmacological and pharmacological uh, interventions. It uh, includes uh, uh, evidence that has accumulated throughout the, the last years, addressing uh, its efficacy on actual manifestations, peripheral manifestations, but also evidence on the efficacy of the different drugs on the extra musculoskeletal manifestations has been accumulating with uh, data available in patients with pure actual SPA, but also in other populations such as patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, or IBD. This uh, Azazula Euler recommendations were for the management of actual SPA were first developed in 2006 updated in 2010, both covering uh, only radiographic actual SPA, and then they were further updated and expanded into the entire spectrum of actual SPA in 2016. And now we will be uh, addressing the update from 2022. So following the Euler standardized operating procedures, two systematic literature reviews were conducted, one on non-pharmacological and, and non-biological uh, treatment, and another addressing biological uh, DMARTs. And then in a task force meeting, the evidence was presented, discussed, and then overarching principles and recommendations were updated and followed by voting. And so I will uh, guide you through the most important points of these recommendations. So we have five overarching principles that are unchanged compared to the previous version of the recommendations. And we have 15 recommendations and they have a focus on pers personalized um, medicine. And, and they have, uh, they are mainly, uh, eight of them are unchanged compared to the previous recommendations. Three have minor edits uh, on nomenclature and two have relevant updates. And we have two completely new recommendations that were newly formulated. The first, first five recommendations focus on the treatment target, monitoring, and, and how the uh, first-line 
pharmacological treatments uh, is established. So starting starting with the uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as the first pharmacological choice. Then continuing, we have next recommendations dealing with uh, analgesics and discouraging long-term glucocorticoids and conventional synthetic PMARTs for pure actual involvement. And then we start with the parts that really are more relevant because they have more updates compared to the previous version of the recommendations. So then we start with uh, the indication for treatment with biologicals or targeted synthetic DMARDs. And with biologicals, we include TNF inhibitors and IL-17 inhibitors. And now we have a new drug class, the JEK inhibitors, which are considered in this version of the recommendation. So if a patient has eligibility for treatment with these molecules, then any of these drug classes uh, can be used. And it's important to think about and to emphasize what eligibility with this treatment means. And it's a patient that has failed conventional treatment, so at least uh, two NSAIDs, and that has high disease activity, which um, is defined with an ASDAS of at least 2.1. Um, and this is something that is new in these recommendations because it's for the first time that high disease activity is solely defined by the presence of uh, an ASDAS. In earlier recommendations, we also had the BASDA as an alternative, but now we have so much accumulated evidence that the ASDAS performs better, that an ASDAS score of at least 2.1 uh, is sufficient to define high disease activity. So this together with the failure to treatment that I mentioned, and then the presence of either uh, elevated CRP or inflammation on the MRI or a radiographic sacroiliitis makes the patient eligible for treatment. When patients are eligible for treatment with biologicals or targeted synthetic DMARCs, then any of the three uh, drug classes can be started, while the task force emphasizes that current practices to start with TNF inhibitor or IL-17 inhibitor due to more accumulated evidence, experience, safety data with these uh, drug classes. And it's important to uh, also realize that due to the evidence that we have with uh, extra musculoskeletal manifestations and their effect on treatment efficacy, we now have for the first time one new recommendation dealing with the presence of extra musculoskeletal manifestations uh, as they can uh, help to guide treatment choice. And when there is uh, the presence of recurrent uveitis or inflammatory bowel disease, then there is a preference for TNF monoclonal antibodies as these have been shown to be more efficacious in the presence of these extra musculoskeletal manifestations, especially in comparison with ethanercept or with sekikinumab, uh, which uh, they were compared to. And when there is presence of significant psoriasis, then the preference goes for IL-17 inhibitors, which have shown and data borrowed from psoriatic arthritis, but then they have shown to be even superior compared to TNF inhibitors, especially in what concerns skin outcomes. And if this first treatment uh, choice, either biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs, fails, I think it's important to uh, recommend what we did now in the task force. Uh, and actually, I think it's probably the most important uh, recommendation that we have, a, full, a fully new recommendation where we uh, address treatment failure by prompting ourselves to reevaluate the diagnosis and to consider the presence of comorbidities. This means that if there is a high score of an ASDAS and we are suspecting uh, that there is high disease activity to uh, introduce a new treatment, 
patient has not responded to a pre previous treatment. First, let's think about whether the diagnosis is really correct and, and, and whether there is no presence of comorbidities, like, for example, osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia, as this can contribute to a higher score of the ASDAS, for example, without really reflecting inflammatory activity and therefore not not being a, a, a real target for a new treatment with biologic or, or targeted synthetic DMARDs. But if in turn uh, active actual SPA is confirmed and the patient has failed the first treatment, then it's indeed recommended to switch to another biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD where any switch to any drug classes, class is recommended. And then if we um, reach a state when um, sustained remission has been uh, achieved and we have a patient stable and in sustained remission, the recommendation is to consider tapering where uh, we have uh, focused tapering solely on a biological DMART and without recommending tapering of a targeted synthetic DMART, especially because, or actually solely because there is not yet any data on tapering of uh, um, JAK inhibitors. And the last uh, recommendations deal with surgery and spinal fractures and they are unchanged. So I think this is in a nutshell, a short summary of what the recommendations uh, tell us and they provide healthcare professionals taking care of patients with actual SPA patients and other relevant stakeholders with the most update evidence and expert insights in the management of the patients with the actual SPA. So I, I, I think I would like to let it here in terms of the summary and maybe if you would like to add something, uh, Xenophon, what is for you particularly important in this update of the recommendations? Thank you very much, Sophia. I think it was indeed very uh, well presented in terms of uh, going through a lot of work um, within a, with very precise um, sentences here and guiding us through it. Well, I believe that we, um, as compared to the previous update, we really have come much further with these recommendations since uh, we have added the entire evidence we've accumulated in the last couple of years, including um, comparisons between biologic DMARDs, not so much um, when it comes to JAK inhibitors, because as you mentioned, the accumulated evidence is not that much, but also including um, information about how, how to handle patients who do respond well and others who do not respond well to the treatment. Um, I, I can comment on your question, but I also have a question to you for you later because you are the lead author of this uh, of this effort. First of all, what I am very much interested in is what to do if a patient does well, you know, how to really handle that patient, um, especially since uh, the discussion and the question about tapering um, or even stopping the treatment has come up in the very last years. And we state clearly here that um, indeed um, tapering uh, is um, recommended in patients with sustained remission. For those who always ask the question or for those who are asking themselves, what is sustained remission? Uh, we all have said, well, you know, if you have it for at least six months and you really almost more or less constantly in remission, you would consider a patient being in sustained remission. Um, I don't know if it, is, it has to be four or six or eight months. Uh, for sure, it has to be that the physician is convinced that this patient is doing very well without any danger of, of relapsing. Um, the other question I think that we need to discuss and you can maybe comment on, uh, Sophia, is um, what do we mean by um, indeed reevaluating um, the diagnosis? So what kind of 
um, um, situations can we face maybe in this uh, in, in this part? Yes, it's a very good question. Thank you. I think what we mean is take into account that these diagnoses are not always uh, set in stone, and there's also uh, evolution in our knowledge. Sometimes the diagnosis may have been set, uh, maybe made five or eight years ago, and there's evolving knowledge. So it's revisiting and reevaluating the features that were present and the manifestations that were present uh, at that time, uh, imaging and objective features, so uh, elevated uh, uh, inflammatory markers that were present or absent, uh, imaging that was performed, uh, re look again at uh, a pelvic x-ray, look again at an MRI that was eventually performed at that time, and look from a different perspective. Sometimes diagnoses were made earlier by different colleagues or and patients are now followed up by a different doctor. So it's simply being open-minded and knowing that we can all make a diagnosis at the moment and later think about it uh, differently. We also, if we think about also how the field evolves, we know that MRI of the sacroiliac joints is a very important and useful feature, but uh, maybe 10 years ago or likely 10 years ago, if we saw inflammation on the SI joints, it, we were, sure that it was actual SPA. And nowadays, we also know that there are false positives and that not always uh, bone marrow edema on the SI joints means directly actual SPA. So it's more reassessing all the available information with a more critical look. And uh, it, it can be to simply reach the conclusion that we agree with the diagnosis and we are convinced of this, and that's very good. If in doubt, it can also be a moment to perform uh, other tests, eventually uh, imaging, to confirm or not uh, the diagnosis. So I think that's what I would recommend uh, and what uh, I understand under this recommendation and what we discussed in the task force. That's right. We also um, need to consider that might be that we have the right uh, diagnosis, but just again, the treatment is not, as you mentioned, the treatment is not working properly. So it's not always that we, we question the diagnosis, as you mentioned. No, it's only being open to look at it again, but the conclusion can very well be it's actual SPA and then it's active disease. And then we go forward to the next step, which will be a switch uh, of treatment. That's right. All right, let's go over to, the, to our second paper um, that uh, was a part of these uh, recommendations. It was authored by Kaspar Webers and um, uh, other colleagues, including us as co-authors. Um, that second paper is entitled Efficacy and Safety of Biological DMARDs. And now the important part, a systematic literature review informing the 2022 update of the Azazula recommendations for the management of access spondyloarthritis. Now you all have to remember that um, these recommendations that Sophia has uh, already introduced uh, are based on uh, systematic literature reviews. And these literature reviews are of course um, also taking into account what has been published before. This means the 2016 update was um, certainly taken as a basis, but of course we, and this was the intention of this update, we um, discovered or checked for new evidence um, which has emerged in the efficacy and safety of bio biologic DMARDs, but also other treatments in the field of access arthritis. Here we talk about biologic DMARDs. Um, this, is, um, this means that we conducted a, a systematic literature review in the time um, after the last recommendations were published. This means 2016 to 2021. These were the years that were included. Uh, on the um, 
arguments on the data regarding efficacy and safety of these biologic tumors in access spondyloarthritis. And here we included both radiographic and non-radiographic access spondyloarthritis. The um, uh, rules are also set as such that we say that eligible study designs need to be predefined. And here we included, I would say as always, and this has a purpose of, of course, that we want to have a solid um, data ba uh, basis for the data. So we included randomized control trials, strategy trials, and observational studies, especially the latter were for safety and uh, extramusculoskeletal manifestations. And all the relevant efficacy and safety outcomes were included were out where 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 the from which we thereafter of course um, formed the recommendations the best possible way in terms of wording now what did this uh, literature review show overall we uh, have been able to include out, out of the many papers that were found 148 publications and there is bullet points that we have um, um, defined because these are exactly this is the exactly the information that informs the recommendations so first of all, we found that the efficacy of um, the drugs such as golibumab and cetolizumab was confirmed, something that was missing in that sense in the previous uh, recommendations. Um, we also found, and this is extremely important, that uh, or, or we state that uh, DNF um, inhibitor biosimilars uh, are equivalent to originators. Um, we had 15 RCTs uh, that showed data or presented data on efficacy of interleukin-17 inhibitors. And um, this demonstrated clinically relevant effects. Uh, this means the risk ratio versus placebo to achieve the primary outcome, which is mostly nowadays as as 40. The response was a line between 1.3 and 15.3 um, for the radiographic AXPA and 1.4 to 2.1 in non-radiographic AXPA. This very simply means that there is a clear effect. Um, these differences in the radiographic versus the non-radiographic regarding also the range have to do with the fact that um, the designs of the studies in radiographic and non-radiographic uh, AXPA are not always the same with especially placebo um, patients being able to um, escape to active drug uh, in non-radiographic studies uh, mainly. Now, we also um, uh, have found that um, the efficacy of IL-17 inhibitors, this means cyclokinumab and ixikizumab, um, uh, is uh, demonstrated in both TNF uh, blocker naive and TNF blocker inadequate responders. And on the other hand, we didn't find any um, relevant benefits in patients who were treated with IL-23 or IL-12-23 inhibitors um, in this indication. Also, tapering of TNF blockers by spacing, uh, something we just discussed, um, was, was found to be non-inferior to the standard dose treatment. Um, spacing is always a little bit tricky in terms of these studies because uh, there's no sequential and slow spacing. It's more or less a direct spacing from, let's say, the full dose to half of the dose, but this is the way the studies have been done. Nevertheless, um, this spacing was non-inferior to the standard dose treatment. Um, the first AXPA 3 to target trial, on the other hand, uh, which is uh, the other part, this means uh, we were not spacing, but we treat to target independent of how much effort we will be giving. So this first AXPA 3 to target trial did not uh, meet its primary endpoint, um, but showed improvements in other secondary endpoints. Primary endpoint was at, was at that time the as a self index 30% improvement. Uh, again, not met, but uh, other improvements in the uh, uh, disease activity outcomes were found. So there's always a balance of how to deal with patients who either need to be 
I would now offensively say pushed to a target, which is something that we already have, as I mentioned before, as a 40. But um, and in those cases where we are able to reach uh, this very good response and sustained transmission, um, again, um, uh, tapering was uh, found to be um, good and as good as uh, continuous treatment with the original dosing. There were no new risks identified with the NF blockers used in observational studies. Um, uh, these data are lacking for L17 inhibitors yet. Um, for Sekikinumab and Entanaset, um, we found associations with increased risk of uveitis in observational studies compared to monoclonal TNF blockers. Um, this, the, the study situation is varying a little bit, uh, but this variation overall has to do with the fact that we have very low numbers of studies. For Sikinum of just one, uh, and for it answered uh, just two studies that um, were used for this um, literature review. So, in conclusion, um, new evidence supports the efficacy and safety of TNF blockers, both originators and biosimilars, but also L17 inhibitors in both radiographic and non radiographic AXPA, while other cytokine blockades, such as L23 inhibition, failed to show relevant effects. And observational studies. That is what I mentioned um, earlier, are still needed to confirm the longer, even longer term uh, term safety of L17 inhibitors. Although, again, um, and as mentioned before by Sophia, we have put um, this biologic DMART treatment at the same level as TNF blockers in terms of um, uh, current uh, standard in, in daily practice. Um, this was my part for that. I think um, this, again, is, is the help to to provide evidence and in, in, um, uh, for the recommendations. Um, so I would conclude of saying that we are certainly much ahead in terms of data generation, evidence for um, efficacy and safety. However, we're still missing things. And Sophia, what do you think I'm thinking of? Well, I don't know imagine directly what you are thinking directly because there are many things I think we are missing. So let's talk about a few of them. And I'm happy that you are bringing that topic up because I think that uh, I I would like to start by saying that we don't have head-to-head -head trials. And I think that's really a problem. Exactly. Uh, I think it's very positive and good that we have a larger treatment armamentarium. I think that's a very good sign for our patients. But we have to try to position them without having head-to-head uh, -head trials. So what happens is that in the absence of uh, data prioritizing one or the other drug class, we also put them at, um, an, uh, at the same level, actually, in terms of the possibility to prescribe any drug class, while we emphasize that the current practice is to start with a TNF inhibitor or IL-17 inhibitor for the reasons already, already discussed, but actually we do not have comparisons and that's really a pity and something I think we would like to have and we are needing to have, especially when we have more treatment um, options. I think uh, also that uh, the role of uh, imaging in the monitoring of uh, actual SPA is not clear yet, therefore it's not widely recommended when monitoring patients and we monitor patients based on the, their clinical presentation and on ASDAS and, and manifestations of activity of the disease. But still, there, I think there's still room to further investigate this and to understand whether uh, MRI can help us in the monitoring our patients of patients uh, or not. 
And in general, I think safety is also a, a hot topic, especially when we talk about check inhibitors. I think we need to know more. We need to know about uh, uh, safety of the different drug classes, but particularly of the uh, check inhibitors. Is the the are the the higher the, is the higher risk for uh, major uh, uh, cardio uh, cardiac events in, in that were found with dopacitinib in uh, rheumatoid arthritis and also a higher risk of malignancies. Is that applicable to patients with actual SPA that are younger, have less comorbidities? Uh, we don't know, and we would like to, of course, know more about uh, that. And I think and hope that will be uh, extensively investigated over the next years so that we hopefully have more information for the next updates of the recommendations. That's right, indeed. Um, I see that very similarly, we're missing head-to-head -head studies. Um, the question is whether or not we need them. I do believe we need them since um, there's more than just um, the clinical uh, efficacy and safety. We have also um, um, information to, to gain on, let's say, radiographic progression. Um, in long term, we have information to gain on extramusculoskeletal manifestations and so on. But um, this is why we're here to obviously work on that as a, that as a research agenda and provide data maybe for the next recommendations even. And as you mentioned, um, we also have now JAK inhibitors, which is still an open um, uh, an open K, uh, uh, topic in terms of both the same or similar efficacy, but also in terms of uh, safety profiles that we need to clarify better in these patients. And I say this specifically in these patients because the, the, the patient profile itself in axial spondyloarthritis is different than the one as compared to the one in psoriatic arthritis or in rheumatoid arthritis. Yes, totally. Right. <laughs> Thank you uh, for joining us in this AXPA podcast brought to you by the CSF. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed it and you find it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we've discussed today, head over to cytokinesignalit.com where you'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. See you next time.